Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, These great words, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You may be seated. Let's take a couple minutes and reflect on God's word before we hear the sermon. The title of today's sermon is David Faces Goliath, and it's a very familiar story. I I trust most of you have, in fact, read it, uh, and and, um, we will go over some of the details of it, but it is a very familiar story, and um, I'm going to pray before we get started. Father God, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to your word and what it says for us today, and and I pray uh, that that those here who have distractions, who have something going on in their life, that keeps them from focusing and being open and vulnerable in your presence, Lord. But those things would somehow be forgotten. And that your spirit at this moment would just come and help us. Help us focus on this this gospel, this word that we have from 1 Samuel 17. That we may leave here grasping on to Jesus and nothing else as he grasps onto us. Holds us fast. We pray in that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, there's a guy on YouTube um, that I watch, and he gets in the way. He's one of those guys that comes on before the surfing video that I want to watch, and it lasts about five seconds, and then I can skip the ad. You, this guy, though, he tries to get your attention before that skip ad uh, shows up, and he says something like, Hey, y'all, I'm just in my garage standing in front of my really cool, super awesome Lamborghini. And I mean, I used to be a a bum on the street with 47 bucks in my pocket. But now 
it's no big deal. It's just one of my many cars. I'm rich and wealthy. And he goes on to like talk about how he can't spend all his money. And I'm like, come on, I just want to see my surfing video. But one day in particular, I was feeling a little poor, you know, my bank account, maybe it was the end of the month and it was kind of drained. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to give this guy a chance. And so I listened to him. And um, uh, in the eight minute video that I watched, eight minutes of it, um, you know, he bragged about how he couldn't find ways to spend all of his money. And he had a pool and look at this awesome house. It's in Beverly Hills. And I know this celebrity and I know that celebrity and on and on and on he went. And uh, well, in when I when I looked at him a little bit closer, I started to Google him and I found out that uh, no surprise here. He is actually a farce. He has five steps. He gives you one and a half steps Five steps to get rich, one and a half steps he tells you, and then for the rest of them, you have to buy his book or watch his videos and buy those too. And he says it's a great investment and you'll uh, be rich. And one of his, one of his um, pieces of advice that he gives is, you know, one of the things I do is I read a book a day. So I thought, well, if I read a book a day, maybe I'll become rich, you know? <laughs> I mean, what kind of books are we talking about here? I'm just all the books in the world or, I mean, it was a little bit confusing, but, um, I don't know. If you haven't heard of this guy, he's on YouTube a lot. You, you might have heard of him. And what he actually does is he gets in a garage and a Lamborghini's behind him and he shoots a, a little YouTube video, you know, with his phone. And then he buys for a, a small amount of money. He buys a thousand or a hundred thousand likes so that he, he appears legit. Then uh, advertisers see this and other people see it. And then it's this, you know, it just creates all this momentum and his videos take off and, you know, two million people see it and, and then 10 million people see it. And and then he and then he he sells advertisements on his YouTube video and he gets paid a lot more than he invested. The Lamborghini, uh, it, it is reported by some that it was rented. Because on the key fob, there was a little rental sign. And then in the, the, the mansion that he's standing in front of, the pool and everything, it's on Zillow. It's actually rented for the day, for the weekend. It's one of those rentals. Now, it costs them a little bit to rent that place for the weekend, but it's not his house. So, so no surprise to anyone here. It's yet another one of those you know, con artists that try to get your money and your time. And um, at this point, I feel pretty foolish. I mean, wasting so much time, you know, with this, this con artist, it was pretty fascinating, but I did waste a lot of time. Uh, but I did realize one important thing. I'll never get rich reading a book a day. So I, I gave that up. There's no hope for someone like me on this side of the video, right? There's no hope for me. I mean, I want to be rich, but, but I can't get rich following this guy's advice because I know he's just there to sell advertisement. So I felt hopeless. I felt crushed. I felt dejected and worthless and worse than I did before I watched the video. That's, that's kind of how I feel sometimes when I read the Bible. When I read about the heroes of the faith, you know, these guys that do amazing, even miraculous things. And I read the story and I think, wow, you know, I, I, I just cannot. Can I be like that? And I get this little hope, this little, you know, shimmer of hope. And then when I read the story, I really read it. Am I ever really going to be like Abraham? Is my life going to be wonderful and awesome like Abraham's life where his faith was on display for all to see? And Moses, who parted the Red Sea, and Esther, who saved the whole nation of Israel, and Ruth, and like our story today, David. Am I ever really going to be like David? No. Really, I'm, I'm nothing like them. I mean, when I get done, I just kind of look in the mirror and I'm just a plain, ordinary guy, you know, just trying to live my life here in a small town of Wilmington. 
uh, trying to pay my bills and not mess things up too much for my family or my, my job here at the church. And, you know, and, and I feel like there's no hope for me to ever be super awesome or like a hero like these guys in the Bible. You might feel that way too. You see these great examples, you think, I'll never measure up. And I feel a little foolish even for wishing it. And then sometimes, not always, but sometimes I kind of look at the Bible like it's unbelievable. Kind of like this video. It's like a, it must be a scam. I mean, I, I can't ever do the things that David did. I'm never going to slay a giant with a stone, so it, it must be a scam. Maybe it's not me. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's all just made up. And so our faith goes out the window. Well, I remember the day in seminary when I, I, I saw it. I figured out the problem. Sitting there in a class and it dawned on me. Uh, and it isn't the first time it dawned on me. It was, it was the most powerful for sure. It wasn't really that I was not the man I was supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be the hero. The stories I'm reading in the Bible, many of them aren't, they're not really about me. And what I'm supposed to do. There's stories about a champion. And guess what? I'm not a champion. But I don't have to be. And that's the theme of today's sermon. I don't have to be a champion. Well, what we're going to do is, is as we approach this text, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at who, who are these people in the story. There's three of them. Goliath, David, and the Philistines. We're going to look at those three characters. And then the second thing we're going to do is ask the question, uh, what do they represent? Who do they represent? And then the third thing we're going to do is what does that mean for us? So first, who are they? Let's look at these, uh, these people in the story. First, we're going to look at the Philistines. A little background here. The Philistines are just a small nation of maybe five or six city-states on the eastern side of, of Judah there, right near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a very small little nation that emerges and, and then poses a pretty real and powerful threat for Israel and for Judah and the whole nation. And the, there's a lot of border disputes. A lot of times um, the Philistines want to come in and take over uh, the nation of Israel. And, some, and Israel would just rather just not be there anymore. And so there's a lot of these fights. Well, in 1 Samuel 4 through 6, uh, the text describes how the Philistines want to battle over one of these border disputes and killed 4,000 Israelites. And it, it goes, it's a little bit of a humorous story, um, even though there's a tragedy of 4,000 dead. But, but the, the humorous part is that the Israelites get together, the judges, and says, how could the Lord abandon us? We're going to fight those, those Philistines, but we're going to fight them a new way. And they get the Ark out of Shiloh. They get the Ark of the Covenant, you know, with the Ten Commandments and all this stuff. They take the Ark Think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That's what, that's what that movie's about. So they take the ark and they parade it into their camp and, and they're ready for battle number two with the ark this time. And all the men are shouting and the soldiers are making a big deal and the Philistines hear this and they say, you know what? We're in trouble. So we better man up. And the Philistines really fight hard. The scripture says they fight extra hard and defeat them. 30,000 Israelites died. And the ark was taken by the Philistines. So now the little, the few soldiers that are left come back home and explain to Eli. Eli's the guy, the judge who called Samuel, the priest who called Samuel. Well, he, he hears the news that your sons are dead. 30,000, 34,000 are dead. The ark is gone. And the Philistines have won the day. And he falls over and dies. Terrible news. So... 
they take the Philistines take the ark to the first city that they to, to, to the temple of their god, the father of Baal, whose name is Dagon. I think that's how you say it, Dagon. And they take it in, and and uh, overnight, Dagon's statue, the statue falls over, and it's a little confusing to the Philistines. They prop it back up again. The second night, it falls over, and the arms and the head fall off, break off. So the Philistines are pretty troubled by this, and they they they're worried. And then mice appear. It's like a plague from Egypt. Mice everywhere, right? And then sores on the bodies of the Philistines who live in that city. So they take the ark and they move it to another city. And the same thing happens. Mice and sores. They take it to a third city and the same thing happens. Now mice are everywhere, all over the, the, the land of the Philistines. And sores are all over everybody. And so what they do is they get a wooden cart, put the ark on it, put two milk cows in the front, slap the milk cows uh, behind, and that milk cow and the other one, they take the cart all the way back to Israel. And, and unmanned. <laughs> They're just the cows and the ark. And they, they arrive in Israel to the great joy of the Israelites. And they are very grateful. And so the first thing they do is thank you, God. And the way they did that is they took the cart apart, the wood, and made an altar and burned an incense. And, and then they took the cows and they slaughtered them. Uh, and gave them as a sacrifice to the Lord. There's no thanks for the cows, I'm sure. But, uh, but it's a funny story. I mean, it's, it's like they're using the ark as a trinket there. So when we get to 1 Samuel 17, you know, when Goliath stands up, they're well known. These Philistines, we know who they are. They won the battle that just happened a few years ago. In fact, in rabbinic, in uh, Jewish tradition, in the Talmud, they, they have this uh, uh, understanding that, that actually Goliath was one of the ones who took the ark. And traded it back down to the land of the Philistines. So Goliath, when he stands up, they know who this guy is. He's very well known. First Samuel 17, verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits. You've heard this. Eight feet tall. Some say nine, maybe ten feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 150 pounds. On his legs bronze greaves and a bronze javelin slung around his back the spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels that's 20 pounds for a spearhead his shield bearer went ahead of him so it's a little unusual in near east ancient literature to have such a detailed description of armor and the reason they're doing it is because they want to say two things number one 150 pounds of armor how strong is goliath he's awesome He's a man's man. He's taller than anybody. But number two, it's high tech. Latest, greatest metals made in in such a great way that it's great and super and gold looking and beautiful. And he comes out fierce. Goliath, verse eight says, stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. I'm trying to sound like Goliath. but It's kind of hard. And if he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him, you will become our subjects and serve us. The Philistines, the Goliath said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. So there's Goliath. Okay. Now we move on to the second character in our story. That is a collection of people. I'm not saying any one of you, but collection of, of people, the Israelites. Now let's talk about them for just a second. On hearing the Philistines' words, this is verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Dismayed and terrified. Heads 
go down. They don't walk forward, they walk backwards, shame-faced and terrified. Later, in verse 28, David's older brother sees David come, bringing lunch for everybody. And his name is Eliab, verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger. You, You see that? That's what the Israelites are, scared and angry. Angry because they're scared. They're shame. In their shame, they're embarrassed that they don't have the courage to face Goliath. Or they're not strong enough to face Goliath. And so, how long does this go on? How long? How long does Goliath mock and challenge the Israelites? It says 40 days. But it says twice a day. Think about this. 40 days, morning, evening, Twice a day, 80 times, you hear something like this. I took your ark. I'll take your life today. I curse your nation. I curse your wives. I curse your children. I curse your households. I curse your God. Where is your puny little pathetic God? Who is he? Is he like a little baby hiding in the... I mean, it just goes on and on. 80 times. Now you know why Eliab is feeling the way he is. Little David comes along... Who is this that defies the army? He's got all this passion, you know, and who are you? Just, you know what? And, and Eliab says, I know you're conceited, David. You're proud. I know you. I saw the anointing when Samuel came and I was passed over. I was the biggest and baddest son of Jesse and you, the youngest, you got chosen. You see, this, this is the Israelites. Okay, so that's a good picture of the Israelites. Now we've got David. Let's take a little look at him. Verse 14, he was the youngest. (laughs) The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep. So you just think of David playing around with the sheep. I know there's lions and bears, but seriously, he's a shepherd. He has no military training whatsoever. Verse 22, David left his things with the keeper of supplies and ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. He was talking to them. Uh, Goliath, the Philistine, came right when he was talking to them, stepped out from the lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. And David, in verse 32, says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul's thinking, thank you, David. We're ready for this. Now, Saul doesn't care really about David's dying. What does he care about? See, this is a vicarious battle. This is a representative battle. Whoever wins this battle wins everything. That's the agreement. So David not only is endangering himself, but he, is fighting Goliath, is now endangering the rest of Israel. So Saul is not quick to say yes. And then he talks about the lions, and he talks about the bears, and he talks about faith in God, and he approaches uh, he approaches Goliath with this, you come to me with spears and I come with the Lord. This is the stuff of champions. That's where David is. He's like no other human. <laughs> no other person is like this. No one has faith like David. Okay, so who do these characters represent? That's the second point. This is where I kind of get a, a little bit of a problem. Let's look at the original readers. The original readers of 1 Samuel 17 probably were later than these actual events occurred. So they were during the time of maybe Josiah, King Josiah, when the nation was divided after Solomon, you know, it's divided, and it was right before the exile. 
of Assyria and Babylon. So all of that hadn't happened yet. And it was right in that time when we had evil king after evil king after evil king in Israel and in Judah. Everyone's worshiping idols. There's a lot of judgment from God. There's a lot of junk going on in Israel. And in that time, they hear this story read about David, the champion who conquered Goliath. And they have this hope. And, and, and the hope they had wasn't necessarily that, that you should be like David. You should be like David. No, the hope is where is our champion? Where is our king? And, and in Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, David writes, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. See, so, so David in, in uh, Psalm 2 is talking about this anointed one called the Messiah. And he comes and he saves Israel from their enemies. So there's this whisper of a Messiah. And that's the, sort of the rumor going around Israel. There's going to be a king like David, a champion like David, who comes and saves us all. And that's what Israel's hoping for. Now, to you and me, it's a little bit different. I remember when I was a kid, this is kind of how it went for me. Who is Goliath? He represents all the problems in life. Cancer, debt, you know, difficult time at work with your boss, an unruly child, a parent who doesn't listen to you. Whatever the problem is for you, that's Goliath. Okay? Uh, But there's a problem with that. The problem is, how is debt like Goliath who taunts? Israel who mocks Israel does debt do that no debt is just kind of something you do to yourself I mean you know you where you get into it out of a bad business deal by accident how's cancer like Goliath does cancer have a way of mocking God it's just a disease it's not it's not a living thing so what is Goliath really if you get down to the bottom of who Goliath really represents I think and most of the commentators say it's sin And here's why. Sin. Sin is a power. You and I, if I were to put a box up here and just set it down and say, sin is inside this box. And I take off the lid and pull out, out, what would you see? A lot of us would say, first thing we might say is, there's a list of bad behaviors there. Just a list of all the sins that we commit. But the problem with a, a list of things that are wrong is that, like if you just say, killing is wrong. Well, not always. What if you're defending a defenseless person? Okay, well, yelling and anger is, well, yeah, but if your kid is running out in the street, you see, that's not real. So it's, it's hard to come up with a list of absolute, always sin. And so, and, and that's our, that's our ju- judicial system. I mean, that's the courts. It's very complicated. It's a list of wrong things, but it's very difficult to come up with that. And so you know, like I do, that's not really what sin is. So we, okay, well, if I pull out sin, what is it? You know what it is? It's a power that lives inside your heart and causes you to want to do things that don't please God. Let me read a couple of verses. In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel have their problem. And God comes and he says, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted by me? But if you do not do what is right, listen to these words. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, to rule over you. But you must rule over it. Sin there, from the beginning, is a power 
that rules us, masters us. Romans 6, Paul writes, For sin shall no longer be your master in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does he say that? Because sin used to be your master. It was a power. So Goliath, as powerful as he is, represents sin and how powerful that is. So that's Goliath. Who's David? You see, this is my problem because I always think I'm David. <laughs> my parents named me David. But I'm, I'm, the, I'm the hero of the story. At least I should be. And it's a good example. David's an example for me to follow. So, you know, I remember, I remember reading this. I could be David, you know, as a kid, you know, in Sunday school. I just figured that. If Goliath were a problem, debt, cancer, some problem, I could rise up like David with faith in God and with his power defeat the giant. So David is an example to us. Uh, but I don't know if that's really what's going on here. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. Okay, I don't think David is an example to follow, but a champion to cheer for. Not a model of victory that we're going to now emulate, but more, David is an example of a savior who gives us victory. Some of you remember the minivans I drive. I don't know if you know me. Uh, I used to have a couple of minivans. One was an $1,800 piece of junk, and it lasted two years before dying in the middle of the Monkey Junction you know, intersection. I literally drove it to the side of the road and walked home, and then some guy came up and took it to the junkyard, gave me $100. The other minivan was a Honda Odyssey that I took on 15 trips, and I didn't like minivans. I, I knew that they fill up lots of stuff and people. I just don't like minivans, so I kind of want to be a man, you know, and get a 4x4. Four four. So I went out and bought this truck. The thing about this truck or this SUV I, I have, it goes on the beach. Now, see... This is, this, is, this is the point of me bringing this up. If I can buy a, a car that has four-wheel drive, that drives on the beach, my family, my kids, jump in the car with me, and they go to the beach with me. So if I benefit, my kids benefit because they're closely related to me. It goes the other way, too. My car breaks down, and I have to get this tiny little car that, you know, from 20 years old, and it's dirty. My kids suffer through it, and they don't get to go on the beach anymore. So, so if I gain, my kids gain. Why? Because they're closely associated to me. Whatever comes to me is imputed. That's the biblical word. Imputed. The blessing is imputed to my kids. And that's the picture of David as he stands with Israel to his back as he faces the giant. What happens to David happens to Israel. David's not fighting for Israel. David's fighting as Israel. You see that? Are you called to that as a Christian? Are you, are you supposed to save people like David saved Israel? See, that's when I start to feel the weight. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think I can do it. I really don't think I can do it. Goliath said, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. That's the same relationship. Well, David uh, would have to be Israel. I would have to do the same thing. So David is not merely facing personal problems. David is facing the problem of problems for the sake of Israel. And if he loses, Israel loses. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Jesus Christ. David is a picture 
in the Old Testament, the whisper of this Messiah that Israel knew over time. They just knew none of our kings are going to work. None of them. Israel's or Judah's or no, no one is going to save us. But the Messiah, when he comes, and that's when Jesus comes in. And Jesus is very much like David, weak, the unlikely hero, the one no one would choose. But God chose Jesus. And he came and he stood on our behalf. So who are we? If Goliath is the representation of sin as power and Jesus comes in like David does and, and defeats, well, who are we? And there's only one left, isn't there? We're the Israelites. That's us. We're scared. We're hiding. We're wondering how huge this huge giant is ever going to be defeated. Uh, not one of us even tries to defeat the giant. We, we know it's, it's, I mean, maybe we try, but we fail and we know better. So we hide in shame. We play games. We get mad at those who say you can do better. And who are you? And we're like a liab and we have this burning with anger and jealousy and you're, you're conceited, you're foolish for even trying. But then we see our champion fight. We see Jesus win. We see Jesus rise from the dead as we sang today. Christ is risen from the dead. Right? That's come awake to that. That is awesome. That is great news. We come with, we see Jesus as it were holding the head of sin, the power of sin as he cuts off the head. He holds it up. And what do the Israelites do? They're transformed from a group of hiding, shameful people to a group of people now who are excited to chase down the remaining Philistines. And that's what happens. If you read through 1 Samuel 17, you'll see that the remaining Israelites chase down these Philistines and kill them all and plunder. That's us today. The battle was won on the cross. The head of Goliath is off, is done. He's dead. And you and I look at the cross and say, Jesus has won. He's risen from the dead. And now... Jesus goes back to heaven and says, you guys go out, kill the remaining Philistines and plunder for God's kingdom. That's our call in this story. We're selling our home right now and we put um, a lot of money into the house to get it ready, you know, to sell it, to get it right, to fix it up so we can get our full price and get one of those multiple offer, you know, things where it drives the price up to $3 million and we all rich and all that. So, uh, well, there's this punch list, you know, and, and one of, one of the things is paint, paint the front porch. Now I want to tell you this because this is a great example of the enthusiasm you can have as a Christian. Let's say you're painting, I'm painting my porch before, uh, the offer comes in. So I'm painting my porch before the offer. No one's really made an offer. I don't even think people are seeing my house, but I'm anticipating it. So I'm painting every little detail and I get the best paint, and the best brush, and I spend time and I'm kind of nervous because I want it perfect so someone can see it and then make a good offer. So I'm painting to get an offer. So many of us live our Christian lives that way. We, we do good things. We do the right thing. We, we obey God, but we do it out of fear, hoping that one day our house will sell. But this is the picture of 1 Samuel 17. I've got a full price offer. No, I've got an offer that's really $3 million. No joke. $3 million right there. The lawyer said it's true. It's already signed, sealed, and delivered. And they said, hey, I want you to paint your porch. Okay. 
Now how am I going to paint my porch? Do you see the difference? I'm going to paint my porch like, yeah, kids, hey, I'm getting them paint all over their face. I'm just, I'm having a good time. I'm listening to some good music. Maybe I'm not doing a good job, but I'm happy and enthusiastic. And that's our life now. You know, you don't have to watch that video and get so overweighted with, I can't be that guy with the Lamborghini. I can't be David facing Goliath. Well, guess what? You don't have to be. You know what you have to do? You have to let the champion be a champion. That's what salvation means. And then in the wake of the victory, go out and listen to John 4. It's my closing verse. Jesus says, my food, he's talking about food, but he means what I'm here to do on earth, my business, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I'm the champion, Jesus says. And then he says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. But I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. Christ community, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. You're ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and the harvests a crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. That's a picture of what Jesus did. He sowed in what we're doing, reaping. And listen to these great words he says. One sows and another reaps. That's true. I'm sending you to reap what you have not worked for. Let's pray.